0: Good morning. Please find uh, First Thessalonians in your Bibles, please, uh, for our many visitors today, and it is really a delight to see all of you. I'm um, not the pastor. I'm one of the elders. We are without a pastor, uh, although we have chosen one. He's in the visa process, so uh, we look forward to him coming. That is basically what I do each week, is just increase our eagerness for Mike to, to get here. So, to that end, uh, we have been in a study of uh, Paul's first... Letter to the the Thessalonians. We're in chapter four. Uh, Find it here. So, um, and let me say it's always a good day when there are more people from Holland than from Texas here. So, (laughs) that usually just happens in the summer. So, you guys are visiting, so you're welcome. Always glad we can do this more than once, if you would like. but uh, yeah, it's a joy to see all of you. If you are a youth going to our third culture kid camp, or if you are going as a counselor, or if you have a youth that is going, or a spouse that is a counselor, if you're some way connected with the camp, would you just stand? You have a child going, you're going, your child is going all right Um, just know that we will be praying for you we hope you have a great week Um, my our four kids always enjoyed this camp the lord blessed uh, did some good things in their hearts i want to pray for you before we get into the message today father we thank you for all that you are doing in the lives of our young people that are not only in icp but in other churches in the city And we pray for this camp now. We pray that your favor would be upon them, that you would have mercy, that you would provide everything they need, and most of all, we pray they would hear from you. We pray your word would be clear to them. We pray that your will would be done, that they would leave at the end of the week with good relationships formed, with their, their appetite for you increased and deepened, with their hunger to know you, deepened and refined, and I pray you would renew every good desire you have placed in their hearts. We pray for parents, counselors, others, all who are involved, We, we lift all of them up to you. Thank you so much for Ian and Selena, that they could come back. We pray that you will bless them and the leadership they provide. We pray for the facility and that all that will go well. There's always some cultural nonsense, and we pray you'd give us favor as we walk through those things. So thank you, and we commit the week to you in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Blessings as you go. I will be there later to collect your money, if you haven't paid yet. So (laughs) you're not done with me yet. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're talking today about hope in the face of death. So don't know if you've seen this in the news, but the, the science world has been all astir because researchers at the University of Yale in the U.S., managed to take, uh, they had a dead pig, it's, big, it's several pigs been dead for an hour and they were able to get the heart just to, to start beating again, blood to circulating, actually restore some cellular function. Very exciting day for the world of science, uh, not so much for the pigs maybe, I don't know, but uh, uh, you know, it, their, their intent, their focus in all of this really seems to be toward organ transplants, that is the idea of, of helping organs last longer so they can be transplanted more effectively. But everything I saw in this quickly moves toward, it's, we're rethinking life and death. We're, we're revisiting death. We are maybe even reversing death. This changes everything. Well, you know, it doesn't really change anything. Because despite the best efforts of these researchers and others, death still has the last word. Except it doesn't. Somebody else gets to speak into that, and his name is Jesus and our text today reminds us that though we carry the pain of loss, I know each of you do, as, as I do, um, and that is very real and at times overwhelming, especially the loss of, of people we love. There is someone else who has the final word, and that gives us hope. And we can have hope today, and that's the message of our text today. So, you know that Timothy had visited Thessalonica. He'd come back to Paul, and evidently, it seems that he'd brought back word of some kind of confusion or question from the church there. We know that they were suffering terribly. It's likely that several in their midst had already paid uh, for their faith with their lives, uh, paid the ultimate price. And Paul's team, when he was there, if you recall from Acts 17, I know you have that memorized by now, but uh, you know when he went, he talked about how the scriptures teach there is a suffering Messiah who rises. And that is Jesus. So suffering and resurrection were part of the, the preaching and the message from the beginning. Um, uh, but also, as a part of that, it's clear from the letters, because there are references to it everywhere, is the, the fact of Jesus' return, that he is coming back. But it seems like they have come with a question of what happens to people who die in faith. You've talked about the return of Christ and the lifting of the curse, and all of these things, new heavens and new earth, but what happens to people who die? Do they miss this? Are they, do they, are they missing out on all the blessings, the joy, the glory, the honor, the celebration of, of Jesus' return? So Paul writes to clarify this so that they won't grieve without hope, like people who do not know the Lord, so that they can comfort and encourage one another, and, and that's the the focus of the message today is the focus of, of this text and thus what we want to hear. So let's read First Thessalonians 4 starting in verse 13 and let's hear and learn about hope. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So let's notice three things about our hope in Christ, and we'll make a couple of applications at the end. Uh, First, we need instruction to have hope in the face of death. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that this has been the first point of the last two (laughs) messages as well. Makes it really nice, I can just do the command C, command V, and I've got my first point done, right? but I've been struck by this, as especially as we've gotten into chapter four, because Paul sort of shifts gears and he's talking to them about sort of the practical side of things. And he says, remember when we were with you, we told you how to live pleasing to God. And so he, he reminds them, for example, about uh, living ho- personal holiness and avoiding sexual immorality. And then he gets to love, starting in verse nine. And he says, you know, about love, you really don't need us to write to you anything. And then he proceeds to write. <laughs> <laughs> and tell them uh, something else about love. And then today he says, actually, we don't want you to be uninformed. So that is, he's saying, there are things you need to know that you can only know if they are revealed to you. You're not going to figure this out on your own. And so it's, it's sort of all over the scale of, is it necessary to write? I'll write anyway. He's doing that. But the, the point, the, the thing that has struck me as we've gone through chapter four is we need instruction. We need to know, we cannot navigate these things on our own. And even if there are things we've heard before, we need to be reminded. So, we um, also need to remember that Paul is writing to encourage and comfort them. He is not writing to give them details about the timing and other things about the Lord's return. However, he does not want them to be ignorant about these things. Well... We, we tend to go one of two directions when we think about the return of Christ. We either tend to be obsessed or we tend to avoid it. And Paul says, don't be ignorant of this. This is actually important. Now, his focus is comfort, but in, in speaking of comfort, he is talking about the return of Christ and, and our going to him. It's important and good and right for us to explore and learn all we can about the return of Christ. Unfortunately, we, too tend to, we do tend to go to one extreme or another. Some people get obsessed. We're naturally interested in the future, right? Our attention is easily caught when the subject comes up, and the internet is happy to stoke your curiosity with all the charts and diagrams and predictions your heart could desire. And I've seen people become very dogmatic about this kind of thing, in an area where it's really unwise to be dogmatic. Now we can be dogmatic with it's firm in our conviction that Jesus is coming back, okay? He is returning. That's not up for discussion. There are some other things that we just need a lot of humility when we uh, as we approach and try to understand how these things will be. I have uh, one observation I've made as I've explored this is that prophecy is a lot easier to understand after it's been fulfilled. You know, it's just <laughs> you know, before then you're You're trying to figure out, well, you know, this is, um, I'm sorry, you know, folks from Russia, we're glad you're here. But as I was reading this, I was thinking back to the 1980s and it was the big thing was the coming Russian invasion of Israel. You know, that was what was going to happen. I heard it preached and I thought, well, you know, then some other stuff happened. So, you know, if there is anywhere where we need humility, it is trying to understand predictive prophecy. People get obsessed about it. And on this, you may hear someone say, now, I believe this about in times because I take the Bible literally, okay? So the implication is, if you take a different position from me, you do not take the Bible literally. So that's a hugely misleading and provocative statement. And it's unnecessarily divisive because scripture and these kinds of scriptures, yes, I say, yes, you take the Bible literally if that means you take it how it's meant to be taken, okay? Because some, there are figures of speech, there are proverbs, there are other things, there is poetry. So when Jesus says, I am the vine, we know he's not really a vine, okay? <laughs> what he is saying is, in my relationship with you, I am like a vine to branches, okay? You, you understand what I mean? But there are people who have a forced literal uh, approach to this that leads them to areas of being dogmatic about things that the scriptures doesn't speak clearly to. So when you hear someone say, I take this position because I take the Bible literally, I just think it's wise to probe a bit, or you may find, as I have often found, those conversations are actually not terribly productive. So go get coffee or something. Um, The other extreme is avoidance. So we, And we avoid these things for several reasons. One is because of the people in the first group. They're obsessed and they're obnoxious. You think, I'm just sick of dealing with this every time I talk with this person. I, we were at some meetings last week in Spain and sitting down with a colleague and he starts asking me about these things and I just thought, you know, okay, I'm, I'm preaching on this Sunday so, you know, this might be good. <laughs> you might be a sermon illustration. There might be a good illustration of this. But I thought, you know, I just really don't want to get into this with you. And... Uh, Thankfully, his interest passed pretty quickly. So it went all right. Now maybe I'm one of these avoiders. But we tend to react against people who are obsessed and just think, I'm sick of dealing with it. And then we're told, you know, there are things we can't know, right? And those are the very things we want to know. You know, we want to know when is Jesus coming back. We want to know all these details. You know, there's there's final judgment and great white throne and the Bema seat, and there's the the millennium and tribulation. How how does all this work together? And some of those things are not central to the message and scripture tells us everything we need to know but it doesn't tell us sometimes everything we want to know so we think well why bother because that's what i'm really interested in uh, it may speak to a heart issue and we also know that while the return of christ is core to our faith has been since the beginning the events surrounding his return are not exactly core to our faith we have latitude to disagree where we might draw different interpretations of scripture so we think, well, if these things aren't central, why bother to deal with these things that are so hard to understand anyway? And then, of course, we find ourselves in the book of Revelation. And you start seeing, you know, crowns and stars and dragons and heads and tails and seven heads and ten horns. And you just think, what in the world is going on? I think, forget it. It's like the one book in the Bible that promises a blessing to the, to the people who read it. and People don't get past the first chapter. <laughs> this is just too dreamlike. So... Um, but somewhere between obsession and avoidance there's a healthy balance it is good for us to think on this it is good for us to study it's good for us to explore i would urge you to form your convictions slowly especially on the things that are not central but it's okay you know study it pursue it read learn it's good so as so because of that then let's look at the rest of this passage and see what we can in fact learn about how the return of jesus gives us hope and comfort. So second point in this, we can have hope in the face of death because Jesus has risen. That's in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So, Paul says, we believe Jesus died and rose again. Interesting that this is not typical wording for Paul. Now he talks about Jesus' death and resurrection quite often, but the wording, some of the words are just not the typical words he uses. He starts that with this phrase, we believe, which leads you to think this is, he is actually using a creed, some kind of belief statement that did not originate with him, something that he learned as he worships, that he is taught, something that he confesses, something that he shares. So this is not just Paul speaking, this is Paul actually expressing a faith that is a part of the Christian faith from the very beginning. And then notice we can't separate these two events: the, the return, the resurrection of Jesus, and the return. I realize there's a bit of irony because they are in fact separated by at least two thousand years, right? But what I'm saying is we can't. They may be separated chronologically, but logically they belong together. They are they are one thing. This is all part of the grand story of redemption. And so, you know, we live between the times. We've had the taste. But the second, the return, is guaranteed by the first because Jesus rose again. And it's clear, don't, don't misunderstand Paul. He's not saying if we believe Jesus died and rose again, then we believe he'll come as if his return is somehow dependent on our believing it. He is going to come. He rose whether you believe it or not. He rose from the dead. He will return whether you believe that happens or not. You know, some people just do away with the return of Christ because they don't want to face the judgment that goes along with it. It's like people who soften the doctrine of hell. You know, and the observation is if a person starts trying to air condition hell, he's getting ready to move in, you know? So, okay, you think about that one. Um, if you're diminishing the force of judgment, it sounds like you're a candidate for it. That's restated and still got no reaction, but that's okay. I'm secure, it's all good. So, um, So let's think about resurrection. By his resurrection, Jesus overcame death, okay? Never to die again. But Paul goes further. He and not only, Jesus overcame death, not only for himself, he conquered death, not only for himself, but for all of us who will believe in him. So he does not desert us in the hour of death, and he promises, he guarantees he will bring us with him when he comes, whether we are alive or dead. Paul says Jesus' return is as certain as his resurrection. It is the guarantee that everyone will be raised. It is the promise that death does not get the last word. Not for our loved ones and not for us. Sometimes we, we picture, we describe the resurrection. It's like, that's, that's like God's amen on what Jesus did. You know, it just means that he was successful. He was worthy as he paid for our sins. This is God saying, yes, it's good come back to life it is so much more than this because it is the defeat of death it is the death of death it is of course essential for his return I mean if he were not alive he could not return right so his resurrection is essential for his return it is essential for our hope it's not the icing on the cake it's it's essential to our faith our hope our love he is alive that changes everything now you may be here today Um, and you have trouble believing in the resurrection. I've had people say, you know, I I really like Jesus. I like what he teaches. I'd like to follow. I want to follow. I want to follow his example. I just can't believe in the resurrection. Is that okay? And the answer, the most diplomatic answer to that question is absolutely not. (laughs) It is not okay. Okay, you cannot have Jesus without the resurrection. Yes, you can try to follow his teachings, Yes, you'll probably have some blessing from that, but he comes as someone who has died and risen, who has conquered death. And, of course, the protest is often... But the science, the science says people don't come back from the dead, right? I understand. The biological science says dead people stay dead. But the historical science says a dead man came back to life in the middle of human history and remained alive. And he walked and talked and made... You know, cooked fish over a fire. <laughs> he's in the city. He's in the country. Locked doors, not a problem. Inside, outside. He is very much alive. So if let me just say, if that is an area of struggle with you, it is with a lot of people. That's all right. It is what it is. Explore it. If you have an open mind, explore it for yourself. I am confident if you explore this subject with an open mind, you will be convinced, as many, many people have, that Jesus is in fact alive, that he did rise from the dead and that in fact changes everything because if he didn't rise from the dead, then nothing he said or did matters. But if he did rise from the dead, everything he said and did matters and it matters immensely and it matters eternally. So one thing the resurrection tells us, God will bring with Jesus all those who have fallen asleep in him. So if we believe one, we have to believe with the other. It also tells us death is not the end. Death doesn't have the last word, not for us, not for those we love. So this is a good place to consider what Paul means by this phrase, uh, by his, the, the term he uses for the dead. That he calls them those who sleep. Um, I am not talking about those of you who have already passed into that uh, glorious land of sleep this morning. <laughs> Sorry, like a joke, but not funny. All right, so, but, but some see this phrase by Paul. And they say, okay, what that means is that when people die and they're, they're like in heaven, but they're not really aware of what's going on. That's formally technically called soul sleep. But that really is not what he means by that. He is describing death. It's a, it's a softer term for death, okay? You know, um, I don't know how it is in your countries, and your languages, in Southern US, we say they passed. They passed. Actually, if you're really Southern, you say they passed. You mean they died. Yeah, they passed. <laughs> it's like that. You know, Southerners, we had like four vowels into in everything. So that's what we do. That's what we say. Because, I mean, you want to just say somebody died? Well, that is what happened. Understand it. You can be cruel and cold, callous. So you shouldn't do that. But Paul uses this term, those who sleep. Now, it wasn't just Christians who used this term, but it was a, it was a softer term for death. But it's death from the perspective of those who are alive. So, um, you know, I remember grandparents, my father, you know, dying, seeing their bodies, laying in the casket, funeral home. And, and, I mean, yeah, they, funeral home did a good job. They looked like they were resting, right? My sister and I, like, you know, went and touched our grandmother, you know. like, oh, She didn't get up, didn't wake up, didn't tell us to stop, didn't slap our wrist, you know. She was asleep. But here's the beautiful thing. Because of the resurrection, death is like sleep because it is temporary. See, death is temporary. You do not stay dead. Just as parents of young children savor those glorious moments when the child falls asleep, but you know they're gonna wake up. <laughs> yeah. The child always wakes up, and we always wake up. It reminds me of a friend of mine, a pastor. Making funeral plans, and he, he went to the funeral home and asked if he could rent a grave. I'm like, Well, no, we don't rent graves. He said, Well, I only need it temporarily. Yeah, you know, funeral home didn't buy that at all. <laughs> he had to pay like everybody else. But I thought, Yeah, it's worth a try. It is temporary. Jesus was raised, the dead will be raised. Death is not final. It seems final, it is not. And Jesus does not desert you or me. He has not deserted our loved ones in the hour of their death. He guarantees, he promises, he will raise us. And he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in him. They are with him now. Your loved ones who died in Christ, they are with him now. They know they are with him. They are conscious. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They are with him. What is that like? You know, there's a lot we don't know about that, but this we know, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. That's not the ideal situation. Ideally, body, spirit together with the Lord. We'll get there eventually. But right now, that's what, that's what they have. But they have something, right? Because Revelation 6, the martyrs are there. They cry out, you know, Lord, why why have you not avenged our deaths? And they're given a robe, okay? They've got to put that somewhere. So, you know, do they have bodies? I don't know. It's just not, a lot of stuff's not clear, right? So, something I didn't mean to say, shouldn't have said, we're going to move on. Um, yes, yeah, so those who have died in Christ, they're with him, conscious fellowship with him, waiting resurrection, and he will bring them with him when he returns by raising them from the dead. That is how he will bring them. He will, he will raise them, or us, depending on which category we fall in, living or dead. So, let's look at the third thing. We have hope in the face of death because Jesus will return. So, Paul moves in from the resurrection of Christ to the return of Christ. And so, he says, we tell you this according to the Lord's word. That mean, he means that this is a teaching of Jesus. It's not in the Gospels. But it was either something that's preserved independently, passed down by tradition. He has this from solid um, eyewitnesses. Or maybe something he received by prophetic revelation, we, we just aren't told, but that's what he means by that phrase. Um, but he says, we who are still alive, and so some read this and think, well, Paul obviously thought he would be alive when Jesus comes. He might have, but you know, he had been beaten and stoned so many times, I think he thought, I'm just glad to be alive today. <laughs> you know, I just don't know that he had a real long life expectancy, just simply because of the magnitude of his sufferings. But it is good to live with that expectancy. The fact is, Paul did not know. He would write later to the church at Philippi, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I feel hard pressed from both directions. Live or die. It's in the Lord's hands. I think I will live, not because God promised me I'm going to see the rapture. I think I will live because for your progress and joy in the faith. So when he thought he was going to live, it wasn't because of end times diagrams and charts. Jesus told three parables in Matthew 25 that said, that, that implied a, a delay, not a delay as if a change of plans, but that is there would be a, a long period of time between his departure and his return. That's a common theme in those later kingdom parables. So, you know, Paul, I think... Paul was simply alive when he wrote this, and that's why he said we are alive. That's the simplest way, that's, you know, to say, well, I might be dead, I might be alive, and suddenly the passage becomes about what's going to happen to Paul. It's just distracting. This was, I think, just the easiest way to do it. It's my considered opinion. So then we look at this word he uses for coming. Paul uses the word, um, you may be familiar with it, parousia. Um, <clears throat> it's often used for the official visit of a dignitary or, or a sovereign king, emperor, along with all the celebrations that that go with it. So it's a, a glorious, open, public thing. So to the Thessalonians question, then he is emphatic, the dead don't miss out on anything. The living will not precede the dead. In fact, the dead get a little bit of a head start on the living. So he says here, three things that'll happen with the coming of the Lord. First, the Lord will descend, okay? He will descend from heaven, he will come down from heaven. This is in fulfillment of the promise spoken by the angels in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he had said this, after Jesus had said this, he was taken up from before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. How was that? Are they looking up and these angels, you know, they're all you know, all 13 guys looking up? I don't know. Um, they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Just as he left, he will return. Okay, It's not a whole lot of mystery there. As he left, he will return. We can, that's what we can expect. Now, with his appearance, his descent from heaven, uh, Paul mentions three things. Th- three things that actually, they're sounds. Three sounds that will be really hard to ignore. Okay? First, there is a loud command. Uh, now, this could also mean a shout. Uh, so this could mean the, the shout of, of God's people as they see Jesus, the, the shout of joy and of triumph. We'll see a verse about that in a minute. Um, It could also be the command of the Father, because I think there's only one person that Jesus would obey with a loud command, that would be the Father. But I wonder if this could be Jesus issuing the command as he descends and giving the command for the dead to rise, much like he did with Lazarus, right? We saw this a few weeks ago, you know, he stood before the tomb of Lazarus and he called out, Lazarus, come forth. Come forth. You remember, Lazarus didn't say, no, I'm mad at you because you let me die. He came out, right? He came out. And bound, head and foot, you know, interesting. But if Jesus had not said, Lazarus, come forth, if he had just said, come forth, everybody would have risen. <laughs> he said, just Lazarus for now. The rest of you, stay put. Okay, I'll get to you later. So I think maybe, I I don't know, after it happens, we'll know, right? Prophecy is a lot easier to understand after it's fulfilled. I wonder if this is not Jesus coming from heaven and commanding the dead to live. It's beautiful. It's amazing. He does this. He's the king. He's conquered death. He has the authority and the power to do that very thing with his word. Everybody out. That would be an amazing thing to see. And then there is the voice of the archangel. Jesus mentions angels in connection with this event. We'll see something about that in a minute. Then there's the trumpet of God. Trumpets were used for military action to announce the arrival of a ruler, to to herald that arrival, that event. Also in connection with some of Israel's feasts. So all of these sounds appear elsewhere in scripture, other places in different combinations. So I wanna read you just, uh, I think I've got four here that I find just fascinating and I, I think help us understand. So first is in Exodus 19. This is when Israel has, has left Egypt, they are at Sinai, they're preparing to receive the law. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with thick cloud over the mountain. Think, okay, what is this volcano? You can explain this by natural, some kind of naturalistic ex, explanation. And suddenly there is this very loud trumpet blast. Like, well, wait a minute, where does that come from? Well, the king is coming, their king, was arriving, and he was about to explain his covenant, his expectations of them, and it's interesting, in Exodus 19, it continues, it says, the trumpet blast grows louder and louder. People, of course, are getting more and more terrified of this. And then, Psalm 47, here's, we, we find a couple of these elements, this is, the psalm is about the exaltation of God as king. God has, ascend, this is verse 5, God has ascended amid shouts of joy, see, there's the shout, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. So you have the shouting of trumpets. Is, is that what he means? We'll find out one day. First Corinthians 15, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Hard not to think about having infant children at that point. But anyway, um, oh, okay, it is August. All right. So verse 52. In a, you know, you don't sleep, but you're changed. You get it? You know, you change babies, they don't sleep. Okay. They're not funny if you have to explain. It. So, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, Paul in Thessalonians doesn't mention the, the change that will happen to us, but he does in 1 Corinthians. So, again, you, you have these things found in different places. I think it's going to be fascinating to see when it actually happens. Matthew 24 Verse 31, he will set, Jesus speaking of himself, when the Son of Man comes, he will send his angels. Here's the angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So you see these things just sprinkled out around different references about the return of Christ. So um, it'll be fascinating to see how this, how this plays out. It'll be an incredible sight. Wouldn't it be awesome if it happened here, if it happened on a Sunday morning when we're here? I mean... Look outside these windows. It's like, wow. Big day. <laughs> more action in the cemetery than in the church. That might be true more often than we think. You know? um, we were at uh, the... Wouldn't that be amazing to be in a cemetery when that happens? Just astounding. Uh, Karen and I took our daughter and son-in-law to the National Museum when they were here. And uh, there's, there's one exhibit with a, a soldier... Uh, it's just a skeleton as in a glass case and, so, and poor guy missing a knee and of course skin and bones everything else but um, I thought well, knee replacement didn't work out very well did it but you know they were basically showing how things were buried with people in, in the this centuries old okay? I thought you know, my mind goes to places like this I think what if it happens what, what are you going to do man you know <laughs> You're gonna be beating on the glass trying to get out, you know? Like, what is that gonna look like? You know, my family's just like, "Come on, let's go," you know. Uh, I think it really, you know, this is this is the thing. But I mean, you know, Revelation says the seal give up their dead. You know, I, I don't think there's gonna be any trouble with a with a glass case. But won't that be interesting? If you're there, it makes sure you want to go to the National Museum. By the way, go. It's amazing. The first time we've been since they renovated it. But let's stick to resurrection. Free ad for the National Museum. Okay. So first, Jesus will descend from heaven. He will come down from heaven with a loud command, I believe, commanding the dead to rise. The archangels, angels are involved in this. There's um, a loud command, voice of the archangel and the trumpet. Yeah. Okay. Then the second thing that will happen, the dead in Christ will rise. Okay. We've just gone over that. National Museum. Third, those who are alive will be taken up together with the freshly resurrected, and everyone will meet the Lord in the air. Now the word that's used for the meeting is a word used for a delegation that would go outside of a city when a dignitary, king, emperor was coming, they would go outside of the city, welcome him, and escort him back in with all the celebration, pomp, and circumstance. But this raises all kinds of questions, right? How do we meet in the air? I mean, how does that work? Well, the Lord can do it, okay. How does this happen globally? You know, it is, it's like, you know, Y2K is like it's somebody in like East Asia, they're the very first and the rest of us are watching. I, you know, I don't know. We don't know. It will happen. Every eye will see him. But we don't know exactly the details of how it will happen. And then have you noticed this? Paul leaves us literally hanging in the air, I mean, he says, you know, the dead in Christ will rise, the rest of us, you know, we'll be caught up together. We'll meet the Lord in there and we'll all, we'll be with the Lord forever. Well, do we come back? I mean, the, the, the meeting word says we come back. So do we go out or we bring you back into the city? He doesn't say, because it doesn't have to mean that. Are you taking us on to heaven? He doesn't say. We're just there. Now, I don't think we really stay in the air. I think something happens. But this reminds us, Paul's point is not to give us details about end times. He is to point us to comfort and hope. Because the, the main point in all that he is saying, what he is moving toward, is this. We will be with the Lord forever. We will be together, and we will be with the Lord. And that is what matters. That is what gives us comfort and hope This is Jesus' promise in John 14 and verse 3. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am, that you may also be where I am. He wants that. He wants you and me to be with him. You know, I take a good look in the mirror and I think, why? (laughs) I'm just a big broken loser. And yet, he delights in us, and he wants us. That is not only his promise, it is his prayer. John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. It is astounding. He wants us to be with him to see his glory. It's like so much of what he gives us in this life and he says, I have something else to show you. One day you will be with me and you will see me and my glory. Maybe, you know, Peter, James, and John get a little image of that in the transfiguration when he's just transfigured before them. But we will see this. He, he delights in us and wants us to be with him. It is amazing. It really is. And to to see his glory, to enjoy it, to savor it. So this brings us to a bit of application. There's really two things, takeaways. They're both very clear in the text. First, we don't grieve like the world grieves. Okay, that's back up at the beginning. Paul's that's given, he gave us his stated purpose. So let's be clear. We're not told, Paul doesn't say don't grieve. We have a great example, Acts chapter 8 and verse 2, after the martyrdom of Stephen, to which Paul had given a hearty assent, it says this, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. See that? Godly men mourned deeply and buried Stephen. They didn't just say, well, you know, it's what Jesus said would happen, so, you know. I mean, gosh, he's going to have a lot of kids named after him. That's cool, you know. It's like, no, they they mourned. They buried him. They gave him a funeral. They wept loudly. Some translations say they, they wept loudly for him. This was hard for them. It was hard, but it wasn't hopeless. And that's the way grief is, right? If you have lost loved ones... You've buried a relative, you've buried a parent, a sibling, a child. It's hard. It is. It seems unbearable. So this doesn't mean we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we grieve less, but we grieve differently. Our grief is real. It's painful. You can't just turn it on and off. I find those things... Uh, Creep up on me, you know. I know that I'm dealing with sorrow, and most of the time I'm fine. And then something will happen. There'll be some memory or thing that'll just trigger things, and and I'll feel that that wave of sadness. I know. Um, my, I mean, you know, I have this tortured history with death. I guess you know, my dad died when I was young. My my mother's remarried twice. Both of those men have died, and. uh, Uncles, cousins, high school. I mean, my kids look at my high school pictures and think, well, how did this one die? You know, <laughs> they just, I don't know. It wasn't a violent school, it was just the way it worked. But, um, I mean, some murdered, some, you know, fighting. It's great. Everybody should grow up in Louisiana. So, um, but like, I remember at my uh, my mom's husband died in 2016. He was a, had been a general in the U.S. Army. And, um, in, Military funerals in the U.S., they, they have this very precise folding of the flag, and they present it either to the widow. <laughs> See, I've got to get choked up with this. Because I didn't expect it then. I wasn't expecting it today. If they present the flag to either the widow or the son, when my dad died, they did that. And I gave this flag to him, and I was in utter mess. I was 11. had no idea what was going on. And, you know, it's like, I don't think about that often. And then here comes this other general, and He's he was in front of my mother, and he's saying, "What a good man her husband had been, and what this man had meant to him." And, and man, it was—I was totally unprepared for that. So grief does that, okay? And you kind of just have to let it happen, and uh, try not to make a idiot of yourself and crying a bunch of in front of a bunch of strangers. <laughs> so um, that's okay. Even in the midst of this so we still grieve it's still hard it seems unbearable but it is not hopeless and my prayer as i feel grief as i walk with friends who experience this is that hope will overtake grief in time it rarely happens quickly right a couple weeks ago we were in serbia meeting with some colleagues and and we got word that the daughter of, of uh, another of a friend of many of us, a former colleague, uh, had passed away due to cancer. She was 32. You know, we knew her. That you just don't, you just shouldn't die at 32, you know. And m- many of us at that meeting knew the family, knew the girl, the young lady. It was hard, right? Hard for her parents. But it's not hopeless and hopeless. We, we grieve, and that's the beauty of the gospel, is that we can be honest about the pain. We don't have to deny it. We don't have to have the stiff, stiff upper lip. We don't have to pretend everything's okay. We can acknowledge the pain, but we also have hope. We have a way forward. Even though I, I find hope and grief just sort of walk together, um, it's rarely just one, all one or all the other. We have we have hope. We grieve differently. We experience the sorrow, but there's, there is hope. We know that because Jesus has died and risen, because he'll return, he'll raise those who died in him, we and they, we'll all be together with him forever. So we have hope. Our relationships will be different, right? But we'll know who we were in this age. Otherwise, this passage would be pointless, right? You, I mean... I think we'll know who we were and are. I mean, you, you picture somebody from Thessalonica walking up, hey, you're Aristarchus from Thessalonica, right? He said, no, I'm Joy, Joe from Detroit. It's like, no, of course. You know, you know who you are, okay? So we have hope. We'll, those relationships will be different, but the identity is there. The second application is to encourage one another because we are not meant to do this alone. So he tells them not just make peace with, with the pain in your life. He says, encourage one another. And so we come alongside one another, each other, as we suffer, as we know those within our fellowship. Those, with, I mean, we're an international community and things are happening in our, our passport countries, our homes, with our families. Let's be mindful of those things and encourage one another because we all carry those burdens. You know, I get a little chucked up talking about stuff in my family. You know, these happened years ago. Like my stuff, I think about often, but uh, it's weird. So, encourage one another. Be mindful that we all carry sorrows to some degree. And let us encourage one another. Let us focus our own memory, our own hearts and minds on Jesus Christ died and risen and returning, but also help one another as we see others perhaps overwhelmed. I mentioned that about my stepdad's funeral. You know, I, I control my emotions in the moment, but not 100%. And my sister said, what's going on with you? And, of course, I had to you know, tell her. She remembered you know, that. It was, she saw that and asked and helped. That's, that's what we should do. So that's what hope in the face of death looks like. That's what it gives us. Jesus Christ died, risen, returning. Oddly enough, we're not spared grief, but we are given hope to go with it. So it lets us grieve in a healthy way and find the way forward. We've talked a lot about the return of Jesus, what that means for us as believers, for those that that we've had to say goodbye to. But let me say, as we close, if you are not a believer, here's some things you need to know. You need to know that you will face Jesus as your judge. And there will be no escape, no last-minute deliverance, no court going into recess. You will answer to him for everything you have done or failed to do. Um, And you will receive perfect justice. And that means forever in a state as those who know him are in a state of conscious joy and fellowship. Those who do not put their hope in him are in a state of justice, constant, conscious torment like the rich man in Luke chapter 16 in Jesus' story. And you may think you'll be finally free from God, finally be free to do what you want. You need to know that you will be more aware of his presence than ever before. And there will be nothing you can do about it. You will be like a bug that lives in the darkness. When you walk in the room, you turn on the light and, and it's looking for the darkest corner to hide. And there will be no place to hide. So you are today as close to heaven as you will ever be. Those who knew Christ are as close to hell as we will ever be. But those days are coming. And so um, you may think, well, the preacher is just trying to scare me. I'm not trying to manipulate your emotions, but you have every reason to be terrified if you do not know Christ. You do. So our plea with you today, because it doesn't have to be that way, if you'll turn from your sin, put your hope in Christ, the one who died, rose, returns. He will forgive you. He will forgive you of everything. He will give himself to you. He'll help you follow him. And one day he'll call you to life. He'll be part of that loud command, that group of Lazaruses. So just know that death doesn't have the last word for any of us, not for you, not for me, not for those who have, have, we've already said goodbye to. So whatever your situation today, whatever your need from him, go to him. With an honest, humble heart, he will hear you. If you want to know what it means to know more about, if you want to know more about what it means to know Christ, to follow him, please find one of us after the service today. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so very much that you have conquered death through Jesus. To know that we are loved, that you delight in us, you rejoice over us with singing, that you want us to be with you we know a bit of our brokenness and we wonder why and yet we know that you know our brokenness even better than we do and still you desire us and we thank you for that father i pray in this moment especially for those in our fellowship those who are visiting with us today who are carrying especially burdens of sorrow and grief and i pray you would speak words of hope to their heart that That to the extent they feel grief and sorrow and pain, that hope would come alongside and renew their strength. Help them to press on through this day. And tomorrow, more hope, please. You are the God who gives hope. You are not uh, daunted by hopeless situations. You have overcome death itself. And we look forward to seeing you. And we thank you for the gospel for your son. May you be glorified, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.